0: Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Okay, never mind. <laughs> What's up, upper room? See, I always wait to hear from them. I, one of these days, they're going to be so big up there, we're going to be able to hear them when they when they say amen. It is Mother's Day. I uh, as I approached teaching on Mother's Day, I'm going to take a break uh, just for today from, from our teaching series called Enduring Passions, and we will uh, come back to that next week, but I want, to, I want to talk about Mother's Day today, but as I was preparing this week, I thought of a little poem that my mother used to quote me when I was a kid, and I was, I was pretty, pretty grown before I realized that it was an actual poem. Uh, but there's just one part of it that I think about when I'm preaching about something that I really don't know much about. The poem says, ladies and gentlemen, beggars and tramps, cross-eyed mosquitoes and bull-legged ants. I stand before you, not behind you, to tell you something I know nothing about. Mother's Day. I know about Mother's Day, but being a mother is, um, is a unique thing. Being a father is different. And so I, I, wanna, I decided that today that, um, that we would look at some models of motherhood and that I would learn as much as I would teach today. Um, I have to admit to you, Mother's Day is really not uh, my favorite time to teach. Um, Mother's Day is really uh, kind of a trap for, for teaching because it is a day where some people um, dress up and they come to church and they want the pastor to deliver a sentimental, syrupy, kind of sweet uh, you know, tribute to mom. The problem is um, the spectrum of experiences when it comes to motherhood is sort of all over the place. And so while I acknowledge that there are, there are those of you here today and, and you had a great and godly mother and, and her influence continues in your life, um, you need to remember that Mother's Day has a different range of emotions for other people. For, exact, for example, there are typically um, young women who are battling infertility. And Mother's Day is a day of sadness, a day of silent questioning of what God is up to in their lives. There are women who have given up a child at some point in their life to adoption, and while they may be resolute that that was a good decision, Mother's Day is a day of quiet anguish as they ponder what might have been. There are always women present on Mother's Day who, at some point in their life, had an abortion. And Mother's Day is a day of guilt and sorrow and brokenheartedness. Then there are those who have lost their mothers. And so this day is a struggle with depression and sadness and maybe aloneness. There are mothers who have, in ways that we never expect, there are mothers who have lost a child physically to death or emotionally through estrangement of some sort. And so Mother's Day is a day of hurt and anxiety. There are those who just flat out did not have godly mothers. And so to hear... An overly sentimental description of motherhood leaves them resentful and angry and wondering why they had to go through what they went through. And so you'll see my dilemma. Mother's Day is a trap. (laughs) It's hard to navigate. And so what I would like us to do today is... um, to explore some examples of motherhood in God's Word. It's my normal custom, you would know, for me to take a single passage of Scripture and to just uh, mine it uh, as completely as I can. Uh, But today, I want us to to sort of move across Scripture and and survey several places. I did stop to ponder, you know, some things about motherhood, and and I decided that I needed some help. So I, I looked up uh, a couple of things, and I found uh, a document called the Mother's Dictionary. And just so that we're all on the same page when it comes to this this whole thing about motherhood, I thought I should share some of the definitions in the Mother's Dictionary for you. Uh, the first word I ran across was baby book. A baby book is where you put locks of the baby's hair and pictures of him naked, so you can embarrass him when he's a teenager. Déjà vu, when you respond to your child the exact same way your mother responded to you. That's déjà vu, that's just scary. (laughs) You know, that that, that day when you go, when did I grow my father's finger? (laughs) Family planning, the art of spacing your children the proper distance apart in order to keep you on the edge of financial disaster. Jeans, the reason your daughter will grow up to blame her thighs on you. Grandparents, the people who think your children are wonderful even though they're quite sure you're not raising them right. (laughs) Manual dexterity, your supernatural ability to reach the wipes while still keeping a baby with an open diaper pinned to the changing table. A milestone. A milestone is that moment when you stop worrying about someone hurting your baby and start worrying about your baby hurting someone. <laughs> Nothing. The answer to what did you do in school today? There's a mother of elementary s- kids that just heard that one. Second trimester. The second three months of pregnancy, when you ask yourself this question, will my husband notice if I eat this gallon of ice cream and side of beef before he gets home? (laughs) Sterilize. What you do to your first baby's pacifier by boiling it, and to your last baby's pacifier by blowing on it. (laughs) And thunderstorm. A chance to see just how many family members can fit in your bed. (laughs) So we're on the same page. That's the mother's dictionary. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. I want to talk about the first mother. She's often referred to in that way, the first mother. Her name is Eve. Created by God in the creation story, but we come to Genesis chapters three and four, and we find her present in um, in an interesting part of the story. I've called Eve the mother who wept. In Genesis chapter three, we have what is called the fall story, the the story of the fall of man. That moment when sin entered into the human condition and changed forever the relationship that God had with his people. In Genesis chapter 3, God is announcing the curse that follows as a consequence of man's sin. And in verse 13, he's, he speaks about the curse to the serpent who facilitated that temptation. Uh, there's a curse that, will, uh, that, that Adam will have to deal with as the man but in verse 16, there is a curse related specifically to Eve and to to all women. It says, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you shall deliver children. Now, it's interesting because um, critics of the Bible often look at passages like that, and they say, well, that's, that's a just-so story. I don't know if you read Richard Kipling when you were when you were a kid in school, but, but Kipling was famous because uh, as a British citizen who lived in India, he wrote what, what are called just-so stories. And they're fanciful tales that are designed to give an imaginary backstory to explain some reality in life. For example, uh, he wrote a story explaining uh, how the leopard got its stripes. He wrote another story explaining how the elephant got its long trunk. They're called just-so stories because it explains how things came to be just-so. Well, there are critics of the Bible who say, well, the Bible is full of just-so stories. There are stories that were written after the fact to explain away things. Why is childbirth painful? Well, let's write a just-so story, a a fanciful fairy tale to sort of explain in some creative way, why that's the case. Uh, if you want to believe that, you can. Uh, I tell you, from for from from me, as I have studied this book my whole life, uh, I don't think the Bible is made up of just so stories. I think the Bible is made up of thus saith the Lord stories. As he approaches The consequences of sin, God announces that part of that consequence is that there are aspects of human life that will now be difficult and painful in ways that they were never originally meant to be. For the man, it was uh, the sweat of his brow as he toiled over uh, the earth that was not as productive as it was originally designed to be. For women, It would include the pain of childbirth, that most natural expression of one generation uh, producing the next generation. Now it is uh, a part of the brokenness of creation, and, and there's pain to it. Eve was the first woman to ever experience the pain of childbirth. Now, on the other hand, she was also the first mother to endure diaper changes, breastfeeding, teething, and the other chores that go with being a mother. But I want you to see that even in her in, in the pain that she felt there, there was uh, an incredible rest in the presence of God in her life. In in chapter one, I mean in chapter four, verses one and two, we, we see this. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have obtained a male child with the help of the Lord. And again she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a cultivator of the ground. It, 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 there's an economy of language here, but what it tells us is that even in the pain of childbirth, which she understood to be a direct consequence of sin, she still recognizes that God is up to something incredible. And in giving her a son, she, she testifies that that happened with the help of the lord now if you know genesis chapter 4 you know that the sin of the parents now passes uh, in in the in the coming generations and we have the first murder recorded in human history given to us in genesis chapter 4. Even if if you don't know the Bible, this story has sort of become a part of our culture. We all know the story that Cain killed his brother Abel. He's confronted by God, and he he quotes that, he says that famous line, Am I my brother's keeper? Our culture understands this story, or they, they know of it. What's happening here is when we take this back to Eve the mother, She not only was the first mother to experience the pain of childbirth, but she was also the first mother to ever bury her own child. Chapters 3 and 4 are filled with incredible grief for that first mother. And yet, in the same way that the pain of childbirth didn't keep her from pressing hard for doubling down on her relationship with God, the loss of a child also pushed her deeper into her relationship with the Father. Look at the end of chapter 4. It said, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another child in place of Abel, because Cain killed him. Now, the point of this verse is not that every child that dies is replaced by another child, But the point is that whether it was the pain of childbirth or the pain of losing a child, Eve is a beautiful picture of a woman who pressed deeper into God in the heart of that pain. In fact, she recognized that it was the hand of grace and blessing from God in her life that made her life even possible at all. The lesson that we draw from Eve is this one find solace in jesus for the unexpected pains of motherhood you see we think when a child is born we have dreams and aspirations of wonderful things that will happen and sometimes because we live in a broken world that is damaged by sin those dreams and aspirations don't always unfold exactly like we saw that first moment but the fact of the matter is god is still god and he still has a plan and he still loves you deeply and so don't push back press in find solace find comfort find peace during those inevitable pains of parenting make your way to Jesus Genesis chapter 11 In Genesis 11, we find another mother. Her name in her first presentation is Sarai. She's going to marry a man named Abram. God will rename this couple, and they will become Sarah and Abraham. But it's interesting that when she is introduced for the first time in Scripture, it is in Genesis chapter 11, verse 30. Verse 30 says, Sarai was unable to conceive... She did not have a child. Sarah was a mother who waited. I want to talk about infertility. It should strike you strange that the first time Sarah shows up in the Bible, there's an explicit reference to the fact that she's not a mother. She was unable to conceive. She didn't have a child. Now, in the ancient world, the culture that they lived in Such a condition would have been viewed as uh, a judgment of God. You see, they understood that children are a blessing from the Lord. So to not have children uh, in that culture implied that you had done something as a sinner to no longer deserve the blessing of the Lord. It's a bad cultural take on what's true. I'm here, before I tell you about Sarah, I'm here to tell you, first of all, that while the Bible does have moments, individual episodes where uh, God closes a womb as an act of judgment, that is not biblically true uh, as that, that, that infertility is a judgment of God across the board. That is not what the Bible teaches. And so if you are here and this is your struggle, if infertility is something that you are Are struggling with the enemy loves to whisper in your ear that there must be something wrong with you the fact of the matter is that is not true you need to live by what's true and don't let the father of lies set you up for pain here infertility is the first thing we learn about this woman in her culture it was a true embarrassment Uh, there was some level of shame Imagine if every time you were introduced, they included this tagline. Oh, she's barren. That's why she doesn't have any children. Imagine the shame that Sarah lived with as she went to family events and everyone is scrambling around chasing their children as they rough and tumble from here to there. and, And Sarah sits in a corner by herself because there are no children to chase. Well, finally, a word comes from God, and he says that Sarah will have a child, and it will be in her old age. Now, we're not going to read that story, but when when she hears the story, she laughs. Now, she doesn't laugh because she doesn't believe it necessarily. She laughs because the very idea of it is ridiculous. I mean, Sarah is going to end up being about 80 years old when she gives birth to a child, now, there are people in this room probably 80 years old. Now, I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that 80 years old is too old to be alive. But if you're talking about, if you're 80 years old and you're waiting to have a child, yeah, that, that ship has probably sailed. That was the, the reality that Sarah lived with. There was no expectation that such a thing could happen. And yet, what we're going to find out is that in Genesis chapter 21, here we go. Verse 1, Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham named his son who was born to him, the son whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac, this is, uh, this is an incredible story because Sarah had all of the issues that our generation faces on this battle of infertility. She, she was concerned with what other people would think about her. She lived with stress. There was a kind of quiet desperation in her life. She finally uh, gave up the dream to a kind of uh, perpetual hopelessness. And yet, God did exactly what he said he would do in his exact timing. Here's the lesson here. Not that God will give you a child when you're 80 years of age, but if infertility is your struggle on this particular Mother's Day, understand that despite our desires... God is never in a hurry to unfold his plans, and they always happen at precisely the right time. You see, there is a mystery to this whole um, childbirth thing anyway. Uh, I found it fascinating years ago when when we were in that season of life having children and um, and Our doctor was explaining, and and this is a doctor who delivers babies for a living, okay? I mean, that's kind of his thing. And yet, he was explaining the extraordinary, miraculous process necessary in order for life to be conceived. And I loved it that that we had a doctor who recognized that this just wasn't... um, Uh, a a mechanical process like you would run a machine through there's all of the physical steps that have to unfold but there is also this mysterious moment of creation that is a part of that process as well and that can't be uh, written off it can't be uh, artificially replicated it is it is a, a remarkable thing and, and the reality of it is, is, is this why this is why the abortion debate is such a huge issue? Because we have an, an entire generation of people who have this bizarre idea that that you're not a human being until you're grown up enough to contribute to society. It's a very utilitarian approach to human life. It it says that that value only comes in, in the contribution that you can make to the collective. When the fact of the matter is, the Word of God says every child that's born is a special creation by God made in His image, and the value of the child is not based on his contribution to society. It's based on his reflection of the image of God. And that child is a child from the moment that that supernatural act of creation takes place. It is not changed by the development of his size. It's not changed by the development of his complexity. It's certainly not changed by his transfer of six inches through a a birth canal. The idea that we have people promoting abortion up to the moment of birth That's a God-awful embarrassment to our culture. Here's a mother who understood. The Bible says in this verse, So Sarah conceived and bore a son. Do you know that that son didn't become a son after he passed through the birth canal? But he was a son created in the image of God, loved by his mother and father. From the moment he was conceived, she waited and she received. Now that is not to say that every woman struggling with infertility is guaranteed a child. But it is to say this, God is a God who loves to create. Sometimes he creates a biological family. Sometimes he creates an adoption family. But let me tell you something, they are no less families created by God, no matter how they happen. Lesson number two, Whether you struggled to get pregnant or it came easy for you, whether it was by adoption or some other way, treat every child like a child of promise because every child is a unique creation of God in His image, gifted to us to be stewards of a life that He entrusts into our hands. Exodus chapter 2. In Exodus chapter 2, we have a mother that you may not be as familiar with. Her name is Jochebed. Jochebed uh, is a name, a Hebrew word that means Jehovah is her glory. Jochebed was a slave in Egypt, a Hebrew who was born into slavery and would almost certainly die in slavery not only that she lived in a generation with a king a pharaoh who decided that the slaves were were expanding their population too rapidly and so he issued an order for midwives to kill all hebrew baby boys to slow down the expansion of this nation of slaves Well, the first chapter of Exodus is a great story of talking about how the midwives practiced civil disobedience and refused to obey uh, the order of the king when they delivered children, and God blessed them for that. But then we go from this policy of, uh, of childbirth for an entire nation called Israel, and chapter two zeroes in on a single family. That single family has a mother by the name of Jochebed, and she is going to give birth to a boy, a boy that rightfully should be killed at birth, a post-delivery abortion, and yet she also is willing to risk everything to keep this child alive, a baby who would come to have the name Moses. Moses. Moses is a remarkable character in the Bible because he's one of the few Bible characters that their life story is recorded literally from birth to death. Um, and, and we know more about Moses than almost any other character in the entire Bible. So here's, here's the story of his birth. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. That's the tribe that they were a part of. And the woman conceived and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got him a papyrus basket and covered it with tar and pitch. Then she put the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And his sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her female attendants walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave woman, and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying, and she had pity on him, and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a woman for you who is nursing from the Hebrew women, so that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages." So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, and said, because I drew him out of the water. Let me talk to you about this mother, Jochebed. It's a remarkable story. She was a willing mother, eager for the task of motherhood, despite the hard times of the generation that she lived in in slavery. I find it fascinating. Uh, in a sad sort of way, when I, when I hear people talk about childbirth, and, and they say things like, well, we've decided not to bring a child into this world because the world is so messed up. I mean, the world is so bad, we, we, it just wouldn't be right to, to, put, to put a child there. Let me, let me tell you what's wrong with that argument. First of all, frankly, every generation of human history has been able to say, these times are so bad, I don't know if we should bring a child into it. But the reality is. Don't be reluctant to give birth because tomorrow is decided by today's families. If families of faith are not producing children and handing the faith to those children, the next generation is guaranteed to be worse than this one. We are the solution to what needs to happen. Here's a mother who is a slave Her child, she fully expects, will be born into slavery and live his life in slavery, but she's not reluctant to give birth anyway because she believes that God has a plan, and in his timing, it's just possible she might be giving birth to a world changer, which is, in fact, exactly what happened. Her faith in God was the motivating factor behind all of her actions. She gives birth to a boy. He's allowed to live She keeps him secret for three months until she just can't keep him secret any longer. She puts him in a basket that she has made, that she has waterproofed with tar and pitch and sets him afloat in the Nile River, trusting that God has a plan even in these circumstances, only to discover that the the daughter of Pharaoh herself discovers the basket. She opens it up to find a baby crying, recognizes it, as a child of the Hebrews, knows that because it's a boy, this child has been uh, scurried away uh, to avoid being executed. She knows the order that her father had given. But instead of turning that baby in, she takes pity on him and says, I'll adopt him. Now, this is remarkable because what's happening is... God has a plan so detailed that this child who will eventually grow up to lead a nation out of slavery and to, and, and, and to the promised land, he will have not just a love for the God of the Israelites, but he will have the finest military and, 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 and classical education that the Egyptian nation can offer. It's a remarkable story, and and God orchestrates all of this in such a way that when when the Pharaoh's daughter finds the the baby, here's big sister. We know her name is Miriam. Uh, We know that from other references in in Scripture. Uh, Miriam bolts out and appears out of nowhere and says, hey, um, do you need a wet nurse? Do you need a mother that can nurse this baby? Because I can go find one. Yes, go find one. So she goes and gets the baby's actual mother, and brings her. And look at this. Pharaoh's daughter says, take this baby, nurse him until he's weaned. In the ancient world, that was really about the age of three. We're going to talk about that again. Nurse him until he's weaned, and I'll give you your wages. Now listen, mothers don't do what they do for pay, but if you want to pay them, I mean, that's not why she was taking care of this child. But think about it. She's being paid by a pagan princess to take care of her very own baby. And in God's plan, while he's going to get the finest education, the best training militarily and every other way that you could get in the ancient world, because he would be in the very palace of the king of Egypt. Those first three years when right and wrong are set in place, his own mother is going to pass along her faith. This woman whose name is Jehovah is her glory. She's going to take this baby. She knows that God has plans for him. She's now given the privilege of raising him and being paid for it. While no amount of money is sufficient to the task, the task of mothering is the closest thing on earth to God's decision to create us originally for fellowship with Him. God said, let us create man in our image. He wanted to be able to give love and to receive love. It was a desire for fellowship. And we find the closest thing to that, humanly speaking, is in the relationship of a mother to a child. She had the privilege of offering her life as a willing sacrifice on the altar of her home. Mothers are designed to be the most godlike givers that this world knows. Frankly, they give even at the expense of their own preferences. Let me tell you, if you have children, you've already discovered these things, but if you have children, you have to give up some things. Your preference for a perfect house, at least for a season, that goes away. Your preference for a quiet evening meal uninterrupted, that goes away. Your preference for outside activities and hobbies that are not related to kids' sports and recitals, that goes away. Our lives are in some ways wrapped around the schedules and the activities of our children, not because we are simply consigned to, uh, to keep them busy, but because mothers are hardwired to give of themselves so that their children can become everything that they were designed to be. When Jochebed had this baby, it says in, 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 verse, uh, in verse 2, it says that she saw that he was beautiful. Now that doesn't mean that she had a child who happened to have a nicely shaped head and just was real cuddly right from the beginning. The word beautiful here in Hebrew, it implies that she saw that he had, uh, she was able to see more than what she could see physically. She saw that there was a plan and a purpose as there is for every baby, but especially for this one. And so she became a mother who committed herself to the raising of this child because God had a purpose here. She became the mother of a good man, but he was a good man because her faith had become his faith. Moses will meet God in a burning bush about 40 years later, but we know that that was not his first exposure to this God of Israel. He first saw God through his mother's eyes. He first heard God speak through his mother's lips. Imagine, she's been given three years with this child. She bathes him in the evening and puts him to bed with stories from his own life, stories of supernatural purpose and protection, a story about being saved in a basket floating down the Nile River, a story about the providential care as God stepped in and intervened and allowed him to be with his very own mother. She taught him right from wrong. I know that she did because he had a desire for justice for the nation of Israel that he could never have gotten in the palace of the king. If he had only learned right from wrong in the palace of Pharaoh, he would have seen the Israelites as slaves that were nothing more than resources to be used up and thrown away. And yet the very thing that got Moses in trouble was the day that he saw an Egyptian overlord beating a Hebrew slave and he jumped in and defeated. Defended the slave. Why would he do that? Because from his earliest days, he understood from his mother Israel was the people of God. There was a purpose there. Their slavery, even though it had lasted 400 years, in their minds, it was still just temporary. God was saving them up for the moment when his story of redemption would continue to unfold. Moses knew those stories, he'd heard about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he knew what was right and what was wrong. What his mother taught him in his first three years shaped his life more than everything he learned in the libraries and classrooms of Egypt. This is a mother who watched. She watched over him while she was hiding him in his first three months. She watched over him through his older sister while he was in a basket in the river. She watched over him for three years as she taught him and trained him and raised him up. Certainly, she attended every parade and royal event, hoping to catch a glimpse of Moses as he was on display with the royal family. The Bible doesn't tell us if she was still alive when he had to leave Egypt at the age of 40. It certainly doesn't tell us if she was still there when he came back to Egypt at the age of 80. But in a very real sense, the man who was chosen by God to lead Israel out of slavery and into the promised land. The vital piece of the story of redemption. It started with a mother who handed that faith to the little one entrusted to her care. What's the lesson here for us from the life of Jochebed? The lesson is consider God's truth above all else in parenting decisions. It doesn't matter what the culture thinks. It doesn't matter what's popular or trendy. Communicate, teach, pass on, hand off the truth of God. And let every aspect of your parenting be shaped by that desire. You are not called to raise productive citizens. You are called to raise Godly servants. One more. Go to First Samuel. First Samuel, the first chapter. We have another mother who is not well known. Her name is Hannah. Hannah is a mother who worshipped. The story is told of Hannah coming to the house of the Lord. It was the tabernacle in those days. She came to the house of the Lord like sarah grieved because she did not have something she desperately wanted which was a child but we know that in this story she prays a prayer let's look at chapter 1 verse 10 hannah greatly distressed prayed to the lord and wept bitterly and she made a vow and said lord of armies If you will indeed look on the affliction of your bondservant and remember me and not forget your bondservant, but will give your bondservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. That last part is just a a minor reference to a Nazarite vow. It's a a visible sign of devotion to the Lord. It was the same reason that uh, Samson had exceptionally long hair. What what she's doing here is she's praying that God will give her a child. That is what she wants more than anything else. But she will never be a helicopter parent. She will never hold so tightly to her child that, that he's not allowed to grow up and experience life. She's not going to try and pave the way for him. In fact, what she says is, if you give him to me for a time, I'll give him back to you for a lifetime. She prayed for her child before birth. This is obvious. She also almost certainly prayed for him habitually throughout his life. If we go into the next chapter, what we find out is that Hannah, uh, after she raises the child and he's old enough to be left at the tabernacle, she takes him to the tabernacle and she leaves him there to be apprenticed for the service of the Lord. Now, what she doesn't know is that Samuel is going to become one of the greatest uh, prophets (laughs) And judges, he's the the last judge in the period of the judges. He will be the one to anoint the first kings. Uh, He's a critical and godly character in the story of redemption. But she brings him to the tabernacle and she leaves him because she has entrusted him to God. That is a remarkable um, story that we need to explore just for a minute. She prayed for that child before birth, certainly. Every time she would bring him, annually, she would bring him new clothes. We might call them school clothes. As she would bring him new clothes every year, I believe that those clothes had been made by her, and every stitch that she sewed had had attached to it another prayer for little Samuel. Listen, there is little that you can do for your child more than being a praying mother. Women have a nine-month head start on fathers because of this unique relationship. Fathers, uh, okay, let me tell you a story. Um, this is a true story. When our first daughter was born, um, Diane was in the hospital. Um, she had a C-section. The baby was there. Everything was fine. It was a long day. She's exhausted. She's going to go to sleep. The baby's in the, in the nursery. Uh, it's time for me to go home. So I drive to, to our to where we lived our little shack and um don't laugh because i'm not joking (laughs) um and i i'm exhausted and i I lay down into i lay down in the bed and i'm i'm thinking i'm going to go right to sleep but i don't i mean the whole day is running through my head until this thought on this is a true story this thought the first night of that baby's life i'm laying in bed and i think to myself I'm going to have to pay for a wedding. <laughs> I mean, seriously, why, why does that come to me in that moment? Except that for a father, the jolt of responsibility happens at the birth. It's like it's all, it's all imaginary for us until there's an actual baby. And we're like, oh, my stars. I'm in big trouble. But see, it doesn't work that way for the mother. Now, she may have that that surprise, caught off guard moment when she discovers that she's pregnant. But see, she's had a nine-month head start. She's been praying for that baby. She's been talking to that baby. She's been feeling that baby. And there is a bond. There is a connection that's been in place for months. By the time daddy gets to hold that child for the first time. Now, that's not to say that that, that, that one's better or, or worse. It's just to say that because of this incredibly unique way in which mothers are connected to babies, I think prayer heightens the maternal experience. And I think while it's critical for fathers to pray for their wives and to pray for their children, there's something extraordinary about the connection when your mother prays for you. And, moms, let me tell you, I know that you're just looking for a few minutes of peace and quiet. I get that. But it's okay to let your children see you pray, it's okay to let them hear you pray for them, it's okay for them to see you read your Bible. It may mess up your quiet time. It may cause some distractions when when they come through. But it's important that they grow up with memories of watching mom walk with the Lord. They're going to hear what you say about faith, but they're going to see how you live your faith. And that's frankly going to have a greater connection for them than anything you tell them. Here's a mom who worshiped. She starts this story praying at the house of God. She makes her way back with the child and leaves him at the house of God. She comes to visit on an annual basis at the house of God. There's one thing we know Samuel learned from his mother. He learned to love the place of worship. He learned to love the house of God. She recognized him as a gift because the name Samuel actually means asked of God. She was careful to care for him since from the moment of conception she knew he belonged to God. And she lived an example of personal devotion and she put her love for the house of God on display. And what we see is that while a lot of people don't know the name Hannah, There's nobody who reads the Old Testament who doesn't know Samuel. But Samuel's love for the things of God and particularly for the place of worship, the house of God, that came from his mother. Lesson number four. Accept the stewardship of parenting and trust your child to God. A child is... A gift but it is also an obligation the obligation in our culture they think the obligation is to feed and clothe and not kill in fact the obligation of parenting truly is an obligation of of passing the faith to the next generation so that the next generation has world changers and problem solvers that come from a perspective of faith. If we don't produce the next generation of Jesus followers, how's the world going to get any better than it already is? We can't let this be the continuing decline of Western civilization there was a conference recently in Europe of historians and politicians who met to discuss how the foundational, foundational worldview of Christianity could be recovered because they understand that Europe is on the verge of moral and social collapse unless they can recover the foundation upon which European civilization was first founded, and that is Christianity. You didn't hear about that in the mainstream media because they won't tell you that story. But the fact of the matter is, we are finally beginning to see thinkers recognize that for all of the social experimentation that we've conducted over the last two generations, the reality is things are not getting better, they're getting worse. And the only reasonable solution is to go back to when the foundation was secure and when the grasp of what was true was solid. How do we get back to a Christianity that can become foundational for civilization itself? We get there when moms and dads pass the faith carefully to the next generation that has been entrusted into their care. A mother who weeps teaches us that in those hard times of parenting, we press deeper into Jesus. A mother struggling with infertility teaches us how to wait, how to trust God's unfolding plan, and how to treat every child as a child of promise. A mother who watched tells us how we consider God's truth above everything else. We don't get caught up in the considerations of a generation. We walk in the way that God has laid out for us. And a mother who worships sets the example for how we pass on the faith, not by sending them to church, but by leading them to church and leading them to the Word of God and leading them to prayer by our own example and instruction. Here's what happens. When we do a good and fair job as godly parents... There is a reward. And you say, well, well, yeah, I mean, I know when we, when, we, when we go to heaven, there's crowns and God gives rewards. Yeah, there is that, but that's not what I'm talking about. Raise your children. Don't kill them in the process. And you will get grandchildren. And grandchildren make putting up with those kids worthwhile. Trust me on this. One of the things.